Well, I'm going to invite you guys now to turn over to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue our walk through this wonderful letter of Paul, one of the first letters that he wrote in all likelihood, one of the first letters, uh, first parts of the, of the New Testament to be written, a letter that he wrote into a church that he had founded or a set of churches that he had probably founded that were now dealing with a lot of confusion over what the gospel is because some teachers had come in after Paul teaching a different version of the gospel than the one Paul taught. What we've looked at in the last couple of weeks has been almost a, a, a personal journal of Paul's recounting where he got his gospel in the first place and how he brought it to them and, and, and recounting times where he even had to challenge prominent leaders over the nature of this gospel. All of it meaning to tell us this gospel is the one that came from Jesus. It's the one you can trust. He's been talking about the gospel all the way through the letter. But until now, we have not seen him define what the gospel actually is. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we get the gospel defined in one of the clearest, most beautiful and compelling places to find such a definition in all the Bible. It is the center point of this letter. It's its heart and soul. And at this center point comes the heart of the gospel. It is difficult, maybe impossible, to overstate the importance of what's packed into the verses we're going to look at this morning. Let me just start by saying that. We are on some holy ground here this morning. These verses have in them the power to transform our lives. The message in these verses, is the, and getting it right, is the difference between shame and confidence, the difference between fear and hopeful joy, the difference between relentless pressure and restful freedom. In fact, I mean, just this is not overstating it. In these verses, in the message they contain, in getting this message right, we have the difference between death and life. Now, the verses we're going to look at, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, they are packed with some dense reasoning and what you might call technical words that are going to need some careful explanation. So here we go. We are going there together this morning. But I think you're going to find that this text and the message it contains is worth that kind of careful work. It is worthy of the respect of our attention. Because inside this paragraph, coming through these terms that we'll unpack together, are foundational themes that touch on every single human life. What you'll find at the heart of this text is a term justified, referring to justification. Understanding what that term means is the main work for us together this morning. And what I want to do is, is read the text first so you can get some of Paul's language bouncing around inside your head. And then I want to walk through what he says following three questions. What is justification? We need to make sure we know what the term means before we start to pry around into what, what to do with it and why it's important. What is justification? What does Paul have in mind when he says that? How do you get justification? And what happens next? Once you've got it, those three questions are the questions this text takes up. I want to read it for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 2 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For the, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. You can be seated. The word justified is at the heart of this text and really at the heart of this whole letter. You noticed it probably as we were reading through. It comes through in this text four times. Quick hitting succession. And then several other times comes out later on in this letter. So you can't get very far in this text or in the rest of the letter without making sure you understand what this word means, what Paul's alluding to when he uses it. So first of all, what is justification? Well, in this, in this set of verses, Paul actually doesn't elaborate very much. He would have assumed his readers knew that word already and knew what he was talking about. But thankfully, we got plenty of other places in Paul that help us to understand what he means when he uses this word. There's plenty of clarity in the New Testament about what it means. Here's the way one uh, New Testament scholar defines it. To be justified means to be declared righteous before God. To be justified means to be declared righteous before God. In other words, justification is a status that you possess. It's a statement about where you stand. The backdrop for it is the legal system. Imagine a courtroom where a person is is before a judge and that judge speaks on that person's record and says either guilty or not guilty. Justification is a pronouncement of a judge about a person that they are not only not guilty, they are worthy. They are accepted. They are what they are supposed to be. A justified life is a life that's pleasing and worthy. Now, in Paul's perspective... The justification that matters is, the just, is justification before God. That's what he's interested in. God's statement about your life, that's what he wants you to pay attention to. Paul believes, and, and Peter believed this, and, he, and the Jewish opponents that he's writing against here, they believe this too. You are who God says you are. That's his perspective. But, but before we go there even, because that may not be ground you and I share with one another, before we even go into what it means to be justified before God, I want to make sure that you can see that what we're talking about here is not merely a religious minutiae for those who are already initiated enough to care about squabbles over the details. And what we're talking about here, justification. Justification in general matters to everybody, even if you don't believe in God at all. It matters to you, even if that's not the label you would have put on it. Let me just give you a couple of examples from things that I'm pulling out of cultural commentary right now, just the moment we're living in now, things I see out there, if you will, in headlines, things that people are interested in and talking to, where you see justification as this baseline concern for all of us. Shame is being talked about a lot more than I remember it being talked about 20 years ago. 
Now, I was a lot younger 20 years ago. I wasn't paying that much attention to such things. But it seems like shame has really come into its own as a subject for, for psychologists, for therapists, for, for people who are trying to help others get care that they need for lives that are full and flourishing. Shame is being distinguished often from guilt. So guilt being regret over something you did. Shame being regret over who you are. A fundamental baseline belief about yourself that you are not worthy. Here's how one expert puts it. I define shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. You listen to those words. I just want to make sure you know what you're hearing there is that shame is about justification. It's grief or fear over not measuring up not being good enough, failing some standard. Shame is, is angst over justification that's rooted in your past in the sense that it's too late for you. Here's another thing that I've, I've seen talked about a lot more recently, the imposter syndrome. You guys know about this? Imposter syndrome. Probably also been around a long time, but seems to be especially acute right now for whatever reason. Imposter syndrome is this belief that that you don't deserve to be where you are. That amongst your peers, even though you might look like somebody who's got it all together, you actually don't, and it's just a matter of time before you'll be exposed. That everyone else around you has some skill set, some set of experience, something going in their life that you just don't have. Someone described it as a failure to internalize your own success, feeling like you're a fraud. Well, friends, that's just angst over justification that's tied to what you are in the present. Shame is angst over your past. This imposter syndrome is just feeling like, right now, I'm not good enough to measure up or I won't be able to remain good enough. It's insecurity about where you stand. recently read a really powerful essay by one of my favorite cultural commentators, a guy named Andrew Sullivan, on the opioid crisis in America. One of the things I appreciate about this essay is that he didn't just focus on the addictive power of opioids, but on what drives people to what opioids provide. And what he argues is that it's despair over themselves and their future prospects. That once you've given up on a meaningful future, the next best scenario is to enjoy what you have left. Friends, that's just angst over justification as a hopeless cause for you, for your future. And while we're speaking of a future-oriented concern for justification, let's talk about the drive to achieve. That's something surely all of us have experienced, maybe experienced it daily, that drive to make something of ourselves. Another one of my favorite commentators, this one from a few decades ago, a guy named Ernest Becker, he wrote that underneath the thro- underneath all of our drive to achieve, to push, to get better, to do more, underneath it all throbs the ache of cosmic specialness. No matter how we mask it in concerns of smaller scope, he said. That adults get pretty good at masking this ache to matter in the world and, 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 and content themselves with just having like maybe a little bit nicer car than the neighbor next door. But underneath it all, from that little bit nicer car to the 
to the, to the next rung on your career ladder, to the choices you make about what your kids are going to do with their time. Underneath it all, he says, is this throb, throbbing ache for cosmic specialness. The hope, he writes, and belief is that the things that man creates in society are of lasting worth and meaning, that they outlive or outshine death and decay, that man and his products count. Friends, that's just angst about justification aimed at the future. Will I have a life that's good enough, a life that's worthy? Friends, what I'm trying to say is that even if you don't think about yourself as a religious person this morning, your life is full of religious devotion. You crave justification. And that's true whether you're a kid working at good grades or success in sports or a professional student training for your future or a parent making choices about education and discipline and screen time and appropriate clothing. Whatever it is you're heavily invested in, you're probably tempted to look to for justification. So what Paul is touching on when he talks about justification in this passage is something fundamental to all of our lives. It's not some sort of intramural debate about finer points of doctrine. And behind what he's going to say about how we get justification is another assumption you need to notice first. You can't help wanting it. But you can't get it. Not really, not in any stable way, anywhere except from God. So long as you're seeking justification for your life anywhere else, you're going to be chasing your tail. You're going to be restless. And your sense of your own worth will always be unstable. And besides all that, friends, the quest for justification could crush you. What matters is justification before God. What matters is God's approval of who you are. So, the question is how do you get it? Now that we know what justification is, how do you get justification? That's the main question Paul's interested in. That's the whole point of this passage. It's the main difference, answering that question, is the main difference between him and the people that came in behind him, those false teachers he's writing to try to correct, they had a different answer to this question. How do you get justification before God? They agreed you wanted it. They agreed it was important to have. But they had a different route to it than what Paul had taught. And Paul's writing now to make sure we don't take the wrong path towards the thing we all want. Now, I want you to look with me at how he answers this question, verses 15 and 16. These are the... These are the, the the beating heart of this letter, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 picks up the conversation with Peter. Last week we looked at this conversation where Paul corrected or confronted Peter about his decision to pull back from Gentiles when Jews showed up as if they were unclean or unworthy of, his, of, of eating with him at the same table. Paul is saying to him, no, that, that misses the gospel Either you're all dependent for everything on Jesus and therefore have no reason not to associate with each other, or you're just trying to work your way towards Jesus, towards towards God's favor with your own righteousness. That's a different gospel. Peter, you know better is what he's been saying. This verse 15 picks up in the middle of that conversation with the things that he used to try to convince Peter that Peter shouldn't have pulled back from the Gentiles. What he does in verse 15 is concede, yes, I get it. We ourselves, me and you, Peter, and those people who came from James, we're Jews by birth. 
Yes, we had the law. We came into it. And that means we're not Gentile sinners, not meaning we're free from sin. Paul doesn't believe that. He believes everyone has sinned. Here he's using the terms of his opponents and sort of taking them on as his own. Gentiles who live without the law is what he means by Gentile sinners. Yes, we came into the law by birth. Yes, we, we, we don't uh, live outside of it like the Gentile sinners by birth. But, but we know better than to think that gets us any closer to God's approval. Verse 16. Even though we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, he says, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key sentence. He basically repeats that sentence several different times, talking almost in a circle to just make sure you get the point. Look at him. Look what he does. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, he says. So, we have believed in Jesus so that we can be justified by faith he says, and not by works of the law. And the reason we don't want to be justified by works of the law, he says, is because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he makes the same point several different times in a circle there. Point being, we know better than to think our observance of the law gets us any closer to favor with God than those who don't even have it. When Paul talks about justification, one of the common things he, he, he says, one of the common contrasts that he uses is faith in Jesus and works of the law. Think of those as two different ways you could get justification from God. One way is obedience to the law of Moses. In that scenario, you get a worthy life based on how you live within this law that sets you apart from other peoples. The other way is faith in how Jesus lived, how Jesus died for you and how Jesus rose again for you. And this way, your worthiness in your life isn't actually about you at all. It's about Jesus. It's trust that Jesus was worthy for you. So that now Jesus stands for you in that courtroom. And when the judge looks at him, he sees his track record as yours. That judge gives you his track record of righteousness and puts on him your track record of guilt. That's what it means to be justified by faith. And that's why Paul says to Peter, we, even we Jews who had the law, we also have believed in Jesus so that we might be justified by faith and not by works of the law. As, as Paul puts it at the very end of the section, the last verse that we read, if righteousness were through the law... Christ died for no purpose, for nothing. It's that simple. It's a binary. It's either the law or it's Jesus. Now, I wanna, before we move further, I want to make sure that the implications of what Paul's saying here about how you get justification are as clear as possible for everybody before we move on. So the assumption in most major religions, and unfortunately among many Christians as well, is an assumption that I, I think actually comes most naturally to all of us. I obey, I perform well, I achieve what's put in front of me, and then I'm accepted. Then I'll be pleasing to Him. Then I'll have God's favor in my life. Our basic assumption in life is that you get what you pay for, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. We've come to expect that's how things work. And honestly, in a lot of cases... Wouldn't we rather that things work this way? If we have something good, 
Isn't it true that we would rather it be because we deserve it than because somebody just gave it to us? Nobody wants a participation trophy. We want the MVP trophy. And friends, that assumption, that desire, that drive to earn is behind much religiosity in the world. And even if you don't have a sort of law on your radar this morning, I'm guessing it's the assumption you're living with. That your life will be what you can make of it yourself. What I want you to notice from what Paul has said here in these two short, dense, beautiful verses is that the message of Christianity, what we call the gospel, is exactly the reverse. It's not obey, then God will love you. In fact, it's starting places that obedience, it's too late for that. You've already not obeyed, but God loves you anyway. God loves you so much that he was willing to give up the life of his own son so that your sins might be erased, paid for fully by Jesus' death, and so that you might become known for Jesus' perfect righteousness as your own. It's because God loves us that we obey him. That's the order of Christianity and the gospel. But you say, my past, it's too late. And he says, justification comes by faith in Christ, not the works of the law that you failed to obey. You are not what you were. What you might say, I'm a fraud. If only people saw me as I am, they would know. And Paul says, Justification comes by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law that may or may not measure up. But you say, I have big dreams and high goals. I've still got a future I might be able to attain. Isn't it right that I should focus there, that I should put my heart into it? And Paul says to you, justification comes by faith in Christ and what he's already done for you, not by what you may or may not achieve tomorrow. So just get off that treadmill. That rat race is not for you. This is the message of the gospel. It's the heart of it. It's what you have to get to enjoy what Jesus has promised to all those who trust in him. And it's the point of Galatians. We've finally gotten there. And it leaves us with one more question. We've asked what is justification. I hope that's clear enough by now. We've also asked, how do you get it? That's the main point of this section and of much of the rest of the letter. But there is another question that's, at, that's begged by Paul's answer to how you get justification. And that is, what happens next? If you don't have to justify your life, what should you do with it? One of the common arguments Paul always found himself facing, it seems like, was basically this. If God is already pleased with me because of Jesus... And I'm trusting him to be worthy and righteous for me. What does it matter how I live now? If I don't have to live to earn something from God, then why would I care to please him in the first place? Couldn't we just do whatever we want at this point? He puts it in another letter. Shouldn't we just go ahead and sin more so that then more grace will come to us and God will get more glory for that grace and, and, and then everybody wins, right? No, no, not at all. It seems like Paul's facing a version of that argument in these next verses, verses 17 to 21. 
He's building to a statement, though. What I really want to focus on in the last minutes we have together is, 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 is not him clearing away an objection that he seemed to face a lot. That, no, it doesn't mean that you can just go do whatever you want. No, Christ is not a servant of sin. It's not like Christ has turned you loose to go be and do whatever feels right. He, he, does, he does address that in verses 17 and 18. I don't want to spend time on those verses as much because the real heart of what he says next comes in verses 19 and 20, and I want to make sure we give them their due. Not him clearing away an objection, something he doesn't think, but him pointing us towards what he does think, towards what he does want us to take for our lives from the fact that God is already for us in Jesus. I want to focus in especially on verses 19 and 20. How should you live when you're not living for justification, but with the solid and indestructible knowledge of God's love for you? That's what he's telling us. That's what he's going to try to answer for us in these verses. Verse 19 does not begin where I would have expected him to. Through the law, he says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I died to the law. In other words, I'm not living under its authority anymore. And you would expect him almost to say, or you would expect his opponents to then believe, well, then therefore I can live for me. It's either live to the law, which is God, he gave those to us, or live to myself and do whatever I want. But Paul actually doesn't make that contrast. He says, I died to the law. I no longer have to follow its authority. And now, instead, I live to God. What is that about? It's law versus living for God. I think verse 20 helps us understand more about what he means. It follows a similar line. It seems like he's putting them together to sort of echo one another. Verse 20, through the law, or excuse me, I have been crucified with Christ. There's another reference to death. So now, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There you have it again, a death and a new life. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died to the law so that I might live to God. I live now through faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. What is he getting at? I think at least he's saying that Christ's death on the cross was his death. That Christ's death counted for him. But the implications of that are deeper and they spread further. I think he's also saying that any independent version of himself, any version of himself where he's known for what makes him stand out, what makes him who he is, what makes him unique, him and all his experiences, him and all his skills, him and his personality, him and the body that he had that was unique to him. That version of him, that version got crucified with Christ. Any independent Paul had to die so that the life he lives now, he lives in Christ. It isn't that he doesn't have that same body anymore. It isn't that he doesn't still have his training, all the education he received, his own personality and his story. They're still there. They're still his. But they aren't the point anymore. The life that he lives now, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. That truth is a truth known as union with Christ. And I want to spend a few minutes chewing on it before we finish this morning. His life is now caught up into the life of Christ. What is that? 
What does it mean to be in Christ? Friends, that truth starts with a promise. It comes with power. And it works out in your life through practice over time. It starts with a promise. It comes with power. And it works out in your life through practice over time. Let me say what I mean by each of those. What does it mean to be in Christ? That's what Paul is talking about in these verses. The life that he lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God. It is no longer he who lives, but Christ lives in him. What does it mean to be in Christ? Starts with a promise, and that's what we've been talking about this whole morning. If you're in Christ, your status before God and anybody else is not in limbo. You're defined by Him and who He is. Yes, friends, that comes at a cost to you. Yes, there is a threat of sorts built into there. It means that any version of you that's not tied to Jesus, any righteousness, worthiness that you could muster on your own has to die too. The puffed up version of you that wants an MVP trophy, the version of you that's aching for cosmic specialness, to use Becker's terms, that version of you must be crucified with Christ. It must no longer live. But the life that you now live in the flesh, you get to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And that means a perfectly secure, freely given worthiness. That claiming that promise is part of what it means to live by faith in the Son of God. To know you have nothing to prove and you are not on trial and you are in Christ worthy and righteous and pleasing to the one who made you. That's just a promise, straight up. No qualifications. And that promise, when you claim it, to be in Christ also comes with power. It's more than a promise. It comes with a power. I think this is what Paul is alluding to when he talks about it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And friends, we're stretching beyond what our minds will ever understand when we talk about this. This is a mystery that's built into the gospel that's just told to us and and we're invited to live inside of it and experience it even though we'll never be able to understand it. But what we're being told about here is that in some way, Christ comes into the person who lives by faith in the Son of God so that his power is deployed in their life. That's partly what it means to be in Christ. What that means is that this gospel is not a self-help project. That would be a different gospel from this one. What it offers you is not a boost of confidence or a new sense of direction or the extra like push that you needed to get over the hump in your drive to make a mark. No, the old self that might benefit from self-help, that self dies with Jesus. It gets crucified with Christ. In the self-help model, here I'm going to use, this is an image I really like from a book on union with Christ called uh, called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. He talks about the difference between that sort of self-help version of what the gospel is that, that Paul's rejecting and the true version, union with Christ, where there's a power in you that works itself out in you as the difference between Batman and Spider-Man. Have you ever used this before? hope not. The difference between Batman and Spider-Man. So, so, so a self-help version of the gospel says what the old you needs is some new tools. Let's put some tools in your hand that can help you to reform who you are. So, so the self-help version of the gospel, the gospel is kind of like Alfred. Or in the Christopher Nolan Batman 
the, the guy who's down in the lab working on the, 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 the Tumblr Batmobile. He gives you the tools that you need, but he's basically just equipping you. You don't have any superpowers. You're just well-resourced. It, 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 through union with Christ, though, the image is that, more like that of Spider-Man who gets bitten by the radioactive spider, takes on some of the capabilities of a spider. He's got webbing. He's got, he's got sticky feet and hands that allow him to climb up the scale walls. And he's, he's got strength that he never had before. There's something in him that's changed who he is. Through union with Christ, we're more like Spider-Man than Batman. What we're living with now is a new self. The life that I now live in the flesh, Paul says, I live by faith in the power of the one who lives in me. I tell you that not so that you do anything with it at all. He's doing in you. But so that you rest in the knowledge that what you have to work with in yourself is not all that you have to work with. There is one who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure and he always finishes his jobs. Always. Union with Christ is a mystery that starts with a promise, that comes with a power, and that works itself out in your life over time through practice. Now, everything I've said so far doesn't depend on you. It's a promise about who Jesus is that you grab a hold of by faith and allow Jesus to define who you are rather than trying to make your own mark. It comes with a power that's not about you at all. It's his power. It's in you. You just live by faith in it. But there is another layer to union with Christ that Paul talks about elsewhere that does require us to step in and work out what God has, has, has put into our lives through practice. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about the growth of a Christian in maturity in Christ something that happens day in, day out as we speak the truth in love to one another. It's a process, a growth over time. It's something to be, in other other letters, Paul talks about the importance of putting on the new self. You've put off one self, that self got crucified with Christ, but now you've got to put on another one. It's a daily habit. It's a daily awareness or recognition that I am not what I once was, that now my life is joined to his. Wilborn, in his book that I've mentioned already, talks about it like, like marriage. Your marriage becomes, it changes who you are legally on the day that your marriage happens. You are now bound to somebody else. Just all at once, boom, it's done. The pronouncement happens and it, there it is. But in another way, you've got to become bound to somebody over time. The reality is there, it's fixed, it's, it's stable. But the lived reality is different from the legal reality. You've got to learn what it is to instinctively understand the other, to approach things as one person, to work together to find unity over things that otherwise the old version of you would have just handled on your own. That takes time, doesn't it? That legal reality has to become lived reality through practice. And and that's something of what it means to be Join to Jesus. When you're in Christ, one of the things that, that spiritual growth is going to look like for you is learning daily to put on the perspective of one who is in Christ. To, to think about carefully and consciously what it is to approach this day as one who's joined to Jesus. Now, that's going to mean thinking about people differently, maybe. One of the, the, the examples 
that comes right before this passage, Paul is confronting Peter because Peter was thinking about Gentiles as if Peter stood on his own. He was thinking about Gentiles as a lawkeeper whose life was clean, who didn't eat those, those, those dirty foods that those other people were eating. He was not thinking about himself as having been crucified with Christ. The old Peter looked at those Gentiles, the independent Peter. But now Peter is in Christ, Paul's saying. You see those Gentiles differently when you're in Christ. You have to see them as Jesus sees them. And when Jesus looks at them, Jesus sees them through his own shed blood, shed for them to make them clean. When Jesus sees those Gentiles, he doesn't see Jews and Gentiles. He sees purchased, pardoned, forgiven, and made new. And if Peter's in Christ, that's how Peter's got to practice seeing those Gentiles. That's not going to happen all at once. And he's going to need friends like Paul to confront him when he steps out of line. But that's how he'll have to see them. And friends, that same work is in front of us. And it's work we have to take up together. What does it look like to approach my day, the opportunities, the challenges, the people that this day is going to bring me as a person who is one with Jesus, who is seeing what Jesus sees, who is interacting with them not on my own as an independent self, but as one who has been transformed into his image. For that, friends, you're going to need help. Just like Paul did, just like Paul gave to Peter. Just like we're working to give to ourselves and our congregation through our small group system that starts up. So I want to finish, uh, finish this sermon by praying over the work we're going to do together to help one another practice what it is to be in Christ as our small groups kick off in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking clearly to us in your word. Now we're praying to you that you would give us the strength we need to live out of what you've told us. We need the strength. We need strength from your hand to be able to trust the promises you've made. Even the faith that we need to claim who we can be through Jesus is a faith you'll have to give us because ours is too weak. We need strength to trust that your power is at work in us and that what we are now is not what we will be because you are going to finish your job. And we need strength to take up the work together of practicing union with Christ so that this reality that happened once and for all when Jesus stood for us would become something we live from, something we see the world through so that we see through Jesus everything. And I pray that you would give us what we need for that work. Pray that especially as we begin a new year of small groups where we're working together to try to understand the relevance of the gospel to what we're facing. I pray that you would help us to be confident because we trust your power to be with us and that we would be um, courageous to open up about things we'd rather keep hidden and to speak into things that we may rather stay silent on and that through it all we would trust you and your promise to make of us a people that glorifies your name, that displays your power. We pray these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.